0: Four episodes and Barry have we ever before asked for any contributions from our listeners no no we haven't 194 episodes now we're asking humbly
1: if you would become a patreon subscriber
0: boom I'm doing it right at the beginning of the show bear
1: <laughs> I love it hit him up early let's make it happen early I think that's great <laughs> yes and so
0: Let me just say that on this particular episode of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, we are going to be talking about, oh, Barry, not just a good match, not just a great match. We're talking about a historically great match and a match that, with the benefit of hindsight, we think is probably one of the most important matches in wrestling history. What do you think, my man?
1: I would I absolutely agree. I, I think in the pantheon of uh importance. Good historic, use of the word pantheon by the way. It, you know what it, it was flashing on my television as I was talking to you. I'm like, <laughs> fuck, I'll I'll steal that. That's perfect. It it really it really the historical significance of it is it it it, it can't be stressed enough. At the same time, this is also a great match. Yes. And we're gonna be
0: talking about that particular match, which takes place on June eighth, nineteen ninety, as Barry's Oh, the beloved Jumbo Saruta takes on Mitsuhara Masawa, the former Tiger Mask. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking, based on something that happens in that match, Barry, on wrestling elevations that should have been done, but weren't. Oh. were not oh talking about that. We're looking at this date in CWF history, June 22nd. Barry's going to give us a little historical college of knowledge, if you will. And then because Barry loves a good food conversation, we're going to be talking about a recent trip that Mrs. Bowden and I took to the old Cracker Barrel. So, Barry, what do you say? Ready to go talk about some Jumbo and some Mitsuhiro Masawa? I'm revving up the engines. So, just a little context here of what's going on. This is the famous match that we have referenced before, where Jumbo Saruta, after, I want to say, mm, it's been at least a year, if not a little bit more, that Masawa had famously taken off the Tiger Mask gimmick and screamed to the crowd, I am Misawa, and thrown his mask to the crowd. He is over tremendous as a baby face, and Giant Baba pulls the switch and changes the title, gives the title to Mitsuhawa Misawa, which would set the stage for an absolutely incredible, incredible run for the All Japan uh, Pro Wrestling Rings. It also began the slide down the card for Jumbo Saruda. Part of that, of course, obviously uh, influenced by a, you know, what would be, uh, I think about a year or so after he began having problems health-wise, which of course uh, precipitated that. So that being said, Barry, tell us what you thought about this match.
1: So this on on a lot of different levels really is maybe the blueprint for the perfect match, and it's, everything works. So first off, you've got you've got a great story when it comes to this. Uh, you know, it's a, even if even if Misawa had not won this match and and we should say you have Jeff, you have talked about this match numerous times. This is not, you know, th- this is something that we've talked about but we've never reviewed the match and we've never gone into great detail, but the story and the significance of this it's almost the changing of, it's almost the Hulk Hogan becoming the new champion of the WWF. And certainly, you know, that'll be the, first, the only time I'll ever compare Hulk Hogan to either Massauer or Saruto. No, no, no. You just did it, though, mister. You just I did it. I did. But it, it's more the significance and the importance of it above everything else. And it, it's almost like. You know, the way that Hogan won the title and then was the face of the company for years following it, I don't know how many years, I'll say six, maybe seven years without actually knowing, Hogan was the face of that of that company for years. And, you know, Baba wasn't a guy that made a lot of uh, drastic changes. You know, this wasn't hotshot booking by any stretch. He wasn't about something like that. Everything was planned out. Everything. Oh, this, was, this was definitely long played long played, And that really, that, that really, that says a lot about, about Baba. You know, I, I I think I've said, I think Baba is arguably and maybe not even arguably the greatest wrestling promoter of all time based off of his track record, very, very few failures and a lot of success, but such an intelligence with the decisions that are made. And you don't always see that in wrestling. Obviously you certainly don't see it nowadays. So the, the story is fantastic. The drama leading up to the match is fantastic. The two guys in the ring, you know, two of the best in the world at that stage, just fantastic. The crowd, the crowd is, it's like the crowd was briefed before they walked through the building on what to do and how to react at certain spots. And then you've got the announcers. And while I understand two words in Japanese at best, this still may have been one of the best announced matches of all time. And that's I don't even understand what they're even saying, because the voice inflection, the general, legitimate, raw passion in the voice of the announcer sells this match, you know, to, to no end. It's, let, it's, me, let me
0: just interrupt you there, because I, I have a question that we can. Well, you're Japanese, uh, Jeff. Also. Well, of course, uh, yeah. but pontificate on between the two of us. Do you think because you know there there is a school of thought uh in wrestling in the territorial days that the way the referees were told is treat it like it's a real match like if you if the guy doesn't lift his shoulder you count 3 by god okay so the ref sort of quote unquote wasn't in on the finish uh as far as you know the work finish so do you think based on what you just said about the announcer Do you think Baba Clue the
1: announcer in or told him just play it like it lays? No way. And I I would, I'll go to my grave on that one. I don't think the announcer had any idea. And I'll say that twofold. The finish comes up and the finish is almost unexpected. And I actually had to, uh, I don't know, is re rewind the the correct verbiage here when you're on YouTube? All right, I'll go with it. So I rewound the match on YouTube to go back and and see the finish. And I thought the finish was brilliant the way that it was executed, but the reaction, I don't know how, I mean, look, I've been with people who have faked reactions, Jeff. I'm not, you know, I, I'll admit that ladies uh, go ahead. Well, of course, uh, <laughs> but this announcer, I mean, if he's, if he's, you know, maybe he is, maybe he's working this. It, that was as dramatic call. Again, I don't understand anything he said other than Misawa. That was absolutely incredible. And, and the finish and, and I don't want to give away too much obviously we've talked about this and Misawa but Sharuda goes in for his finisher which is the big knee and Misawa moves and Sharuda gets tangled up in the ropes but the way he got tangled it, and tangled is not even the correct word he 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 went into the ropes his top his right leg goes over the top rope but he's then able to to fix himself and correct that and then they have a sequence where they're almost reversing suplexes. And as it turns out, Misawa lands on Sharuda and it's one, two, three. And it just caught me off guard. But the announcer, he loses his fucking mind, Jeff. Like he just completely loses it. But because he lost his mind, I was losing my mind. Like I was up going, holy shit, did you see that? I, I So honestly, you were you were
0: happy I selected this match? Is that what you're trying to tell I, the? Folks? I
1: think this, and I will say, I I think if you're looking for matches that have historical significance, this match is easily in the top top ten, top five that would be available for us to see. But the execution, pardon me, as I'm uh, burping right now. The I execution, perhaps I appreciate that. The execution is flawless, and. Young Zachary is spending the day with me. My my firstborn, my oldest, is spending the day with me and he's fruit at- of
0: yeah. your loins, if you will.
1: Yeah, yeah. Definitely the fruits of something. But when he comes back up from the pool, I actually want to show him this match because again, I this is what, in my opinion, this is what eclipses professional wrestling. This, if you're not and I know that we have a couple of people in our group that are not huge into Japanese wrestling this is the match you want to watch. This is the one you want to start with to see because this will blow your socks off. And honestly, this would be so rare if we could replicate something like this in our country and do this in America. And I just don't know if that could, especially going forward. I don't previously, maybe there's something similar, but I don't think we could do anything like this going forward ever.
0: No, and, you know, uh, I always, I'm always a little, depressed when i hear people that don't want to watch japanese wrestling because they say well i don't understand japanese you know <laughs> it's just like well then if you right. mute the thing to watch just the video presentation you're not grasping the emotion that's involved i mean you can see the crowd standing up for every two count and and getting ready to pop because they think someone's going to win but if you don't have the sound up how can you grasp the emotion in the crowd and because honestly You know, you you get some matches that are, uh, they're just tremendous chain wrestling, okay? But the crowd's not involved. Or you get a a match where the announcing's really good, but yeah, maybe the match isn't really that good. Or you get a match that the crowd's really involved, but it's two guys that really, yeah, they're not that good, but for whatever reason, it's a hot angle. Here you have the emotion of the crowd. You have a great work match. Uh, Between two absolute friggin' legends, you have a great set of announcers. Because one of the things I really appreciate as as far as Baba's is Baba never steps on his announcer, okay? He he lets the guy, he's like the proverbial play-by-play guy that doesn't jump in and feel the need to interject his thoughts at a key moment in the match. He knows when to, you know, okay, now there's like, you know, a, a hold's applied. So now here I jump in and I offer my two cents. And the rest of the matches, you know, in a way, it's like prime Jim Ross who conveyed that emotion, you know, back in his UWF and his WCW and maybe early in his, you know, uh, WWE days. And I know there's a lot of people now that hate Jim Ross. Oh, he's past his prime, whatever. But, you know, prime Jim Ross could convey to you an emotion, you know. My God, they've broken him in half. And that added to the drama of that friggin' match. And the guy that's doing the announcing—I, which I knew his name—but he is absolutely able to convey the emotion and the importance of this match, and it's a a very special characteristic for an announcer to have, you know. And uh, I'm trying to think now—the guy that's the uh, God man, Lou, help me out here. He's the announcer, if you know, he's the announcer for Fox that does football, and he's a. Uh, it's funny because some people really can't stand the guy, and other people love him because he, you know, he's one of these guys that just. Kinda some people think he goes over the top on you know on football calls. So
1: let me ask you a question about so this is an announcer and this I I know him from basketball, but I know he does college sports and does a lot of stuff. Kevin Harlan. What do you think of Kevin Harlan? Yeah, that's not who I'm thinking of. Um but right. no no, I,
0: I know I mean there are announcers that are good announcers and there's announcers that couldn't you, you could stick a, a stick of dynamite in their ass and they couldn't show emotion like it needs to be, you know, but um but anyway, let, let me get to a couple of key moments while I'm trying to think of the the guy's name. Uh, Or if Luke can help me out. Um, There's a couple of key moments in this match as far as the whole dynamics of the changing of the guard, okay? The first moment is when the match, when they've done the introductions, and of course, uh, Masawa has Kobashi and Kawada in his corner. And if you look, uh, the guys in Jumbo's corner are guys like Masafuchi and Russia Kimura. So really, this is kind of all Japan's version of, of what New Japan had done a couple of years before, where it's new versus now, you know, which is a nice way of saying the young guys versus the older guys. Right. And then, of course, uh, the announcer finishes. He gets out of the ring. The referee says, okay, let's go. Ring the bell. And Jumbo goes over to shape Misawa's hand, and Misawa turns his back on him and goes back to his corner. And it, that's one of those moments where the crowd kind of goes, ooh. You know, this is like Misawa. He's not giving Jumbo this, the respect uh, you know, that he would for a legend. And then uh, a few minutes into the match, I'm not exactly sure of where the time spot was, but they go in and they, uh, they're locked up collar and elbow and they go either into the ropes or into the corner. And as they're breaking, Misawa slaps Jumbo across the face and he pops him pretty good. And the crowd just all of a sudden goes, ooh. And then he does it again. A couple of, A couple, maybe a minute later, he slaps him again. And it's really, I think, a transitional moment where Masao is kind of now the guy, you know. And it's almost like it was important for him, obviously, to get the win. But if he didn't get the win, he's letting everybody know, yeah, I'm not the mid card guy anymore. I'm fucking Masao, and I'm coming to the top of the card, and I'm here to stay. Yeah, you know what I mean, Bear?
1: Yeah, no, and and you're right about that too. And it was, and I, even the way he carries himself is a little bit different. You know, when they do that. That pre match package and they show Misawa in the back, which is interesting. They show Misawa before they show Saruda and they show Misawa and he's, you know, he's got the look of a guy going to going to war. You know, it's uh he comes across as a major league player. And as Tiger Mask, I don't think that ever happened. I think he was, even though his his matches were fantastic, I, I think he was always going to be viewed more as an attraction because of the Tiger Mask gimmick. This match? No, just the opposite. He this is a warrior and you see it from the get-go. Th- this is just, I don't know. D- do you agree with me? Is this one of the greatest matches? I think I'll say our generation. I want to say all time, but you know, I don't know what happened in the fifties. You know, I, I will say I don't know if it, I would call it one of the greatest
0: matches, but I would definitely say this is like one of the most important matches. There you go, Uh, and and I think in uh, 190 plus episodes, when you talk about important generational matches, this might be in the top five we've ever covered because of just the ramifications to uh, not only all Japan, but this changed the landscape of of Japanese wrestling because what happened there, you know, as always, you know what what uh, you know WWE does affects what AEW does, Uh, what uh, WWE does used to affect what WCW, and vice versa. And what New Japan would do would affect what all Japan would do and vice versa. And so, you know, maybe what New Japan had done a couple of years earlier, now that affected what all Japan did. Now all Japan took their shot and definitely scored and did this affect what New Japan had to do to counter that. So in that context, you know, this is definitely a very, very important match and and maybe one of the top five most important matches I'm going to say not even in Japanese history, maybe, maybe in wrestling history, period. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to underscore just how important this match is. And the the great thing is, is, you know, when we post a link to this match, uh, if you watch it, you're not going to just watch a match uh, where it's like you go, yeah, yeah, this is a really good match. If you take into context, also, the other things we mentioned, the importance historically, the impact of the how great the announcer is in this match, how rabid the crowd is. And, you know, the only thing I will say, Okay, because I don't want someone to to jump in on this. The ending does not get the pop I I really thought it was because there's a couple of like times when you know he brings Jumbo up and he gets Jumbo in a two count and he goes one two and Jumbo kicks out and the crowd just loses their shit. And this go home sort of like kind of came out of nowhere and it was like one two three and the crowd was like I think. Maybe they were expecting it to be like a, you know, because this all told is like 25 minutes, you know, maybe 26. This is not like a 45-minute match. Uh, So maybe the crowd was expecting it to go a little bit longer, and it didn't. But, uh, yeah, pretty much anything you could ever want from a match, you know, this is just not some match. uh, One of the things I used to say when I did my article on the top 100 matches of the 80s, I said, you know, if, if you have a great match in Tupelo, Mississippi, that's in front of, you know, 300 people, does it really does it really mean that much? I mean, uh as opposed to this where you're in front of, you know, 10,000 plus fans, you're on Network TV, you take into context the historical importance of this match, how well it's worked in the ring, the way the crowd reacts, the way the announcer is is selling it, it's like a perfect storm.
1: Yeah, and that 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 is it. It really is a perfect storm. There's there's no flaw here. The only thing with the ending, I do think the ending probably caught a lot of the fans off guard and Possibly it was done a little bit to protect Sharuda. That's know, fair. It, yeah, that's yeah, absolutely very. That's my guess on it. We'll never know at this stage either. Uh, and that, that's another aspect, too. All the main participants are have passed on, Sharuda, Misawa, and Baba. You know, and, and they're all relatively young. You know, even Baba at his age, he wasn't that old. And obviously, Misawa and Sharuda were both younger as well. So I, I would, you know, look, the match, there are better matches out there. But again, perfect storm, this is it. It all comes together. There's no gaping hole in any of this match, Jeff. So one of the things that I thought about as I was watching
0: this match is, again, uh, probably the 10th time I've said that in the history of this uh, Peabody and Sherman Award-winning podcast, is that this was the night that Giant Baba made the call. He read the crowd. He was watching stuff like maybe like the way the merchandise was moving for Misawa. Maybe there was a dip in Saruda's merchandise. Maybe you know people were asking him because Baba, and this is as somebody who used to go to matches, has gone to matches in Japan before. He used to sit at the gimmick table, and he'd yeah. got he'd have the stogie in his hand, and Mrs. Baba would be next to him. So he was watching what was moving off the table, okay. And he famously made the call that night. Okay, Masala's going over. Okay, so this led me to the question, Barry: Can you think? off the top of Barry Rose's head of those times when that call should have been made and either wasn't, or it was done and it was done too late. What do you think?
1: Oh, I mean, that's, that opens up a lot of, uh, a lot of door. I would say, so if we're, if we're putting this in a perspective, as far as the current environment, I think Roman Reigns is the guy that comes to mind. So let me, let me quantify that as well. So Roman Reigns, when he was a member of the shield, extremely popular, people loved him. Roman reigns separated from the shield, given a major singles push, the crowd starts to turn on him. And eventually it hits the stage where the crowd is turning on him, you know, to the point that I I think psychologically, I think he was actually affected by it. And I remember reading about that. And, you know, now fast forward four or five years, whatever it's been, and Roman Reigns is the top heel in the WWE. Roman Reigns is doing a great job as the top heel in the WWE. You know, should Vince, and when I say Vince, it could have been, any. you know, I guess he's the the final say, but it could have been other people. Should somebody have paid attention and turned Roman Reigns sooner? Because obviously he's been wildly successful and the people have taken to him as a heel. So in that case, the answer is yes, if we're looking at territories, I would really have to think, but you know there there were guys that guys that would come into a territory and if they didn't get over it the way it was expected, these guys were actually turned you know a smart promoter you know eddie Graham and I'll, i again, it's my main reference point.'s probably always going to be Eddie Graham at this point, but Eddie Graham was the guy very similar to the Baba story where. You know, he didn't make the call that day, that night, but he said, we now have to do this because Dusty Rhodes had been this popular heel in an era where heels really weren't popular and it it was very unusual. You know, there was always small heel fans, a small group, but you know, it wasn't like a, a major portion of these people were heel fans and Dusty was so popular because what he was doing in wrestling was so unique. With his charisma and his personality, and look, Dusty was a great wrestler for years. When he turned it, he he became very one-dimensional. But if you ever see the old footage of Dusty from the early '70s, super like lightning, like quick for a guy his size, and just really exciting to watch in the ring. And, and he, uh, bu- he would bump his ass off, too. his That's ass awesome. off, and he was great. And then you used watch some. We talked about Adrian Adonis recently. Adrams are Adrian Street. And I remember seeing a match with the Adrian Street versus Dusty. I don't think Dusty ever left his feet, like, except to pin Adrian. Like, it was terrible. So he really was incredible. But Eddie Graham, I guess, had listened to the crowd and had done that over a period of several weeks and finally said, we're going to have to turn Dusty because he's receiving, at this stage, more cheers than boos. So who do you have? Who do you so, think? Okay, so I, of I, right off the top of my head.
0: Uh, and I, I want to give you a couple of examples because I reached out to a couple of, of, of people that are friends of the shows. And the first one that came to mind, obviously, is, you know, Vern should have given the strap to Hogan. I understand the behind the scenes, uh, you know, mechanizations that were going on.
1: That's that difficult, isn't it? Well, that's that's no, no. political,
0: though, isn't it? No, no, absolutely. But I'm saying for whatever reason, Vern should have pulled the trigger and right. given the belt to Hogan. But his stubbornness, his unwillingness to give anything to Hogan, you know, with the merchandise sales or whatever, or give what Hogan wanted is what ultimately started the ball rolling in the downhill direction for the AWA. Let's be honest. Okay. So that was an example of him not pulling the uh, trigger. So another one that I thought of, uh, you know, first of all, obviously was should they have done the, uh, the turn on superstar Billy Graham while he was the champ? You could also argue, should they, whether it was, you know, one of the things that the occasional mention we have on this podcast of John McAdam and his Stick to Wrestling podcast is John will always say that they should have gotten the strap off of Backlund. Instead of waiting for 83, they should have got it in eighty off of him in 82, and whether they gave it to, uh, I think John's mentioned, Greg Valentine, Don Morocco, one of those guys. Even if it's for a short term, but to get it off Backlund, who had started, his popularity was noticeably waning. You know, those are a couple of the examples. So I reached out to our friend, the professor, Pete Letterberg. And you know he mentioned the superstar Graham uh, thing instead of giving the title to Backlund, so he has an idea. And since you're Mr. CWF the archivist, I'll ask you what you think of this idea. He mentioned should they have given the NWA belt to Dusty in 1976 to coincide with the bicentennial?
1: Yeah, I actually that's a uh, that's a great idea. And then what you could have done, I mean, so Dusty will always say. His greatest opponent was superstar Billy Graham. And I think Billy Graham says that as well. So if you had given Dusty the title, Graham wins the title in 77, then these two could take this feud all over the country. I think that would have done well. And that, that's, you know, we we joke a lot. And I was going to joke about, you know, yes, Hogan should have been the champion of three states if Vern had given him the title just to piss off Brian Huff. but. But, you know, the Graham was one of the only WWF champions that I can recall that actually defended his title in many states that were NWA states. You know, he had that kind of drawing power. So I like that idea. You know, I I, I don't know if they would have considered Dusty in 76. I don't know if Dusty was a consideration until later. Uh, well, gotta...
0: because I don't know what kind of stroke Sam Muchnick would have still had. I know, uh, you know, he was starting, his power was uh, beginning to wane as he started to get older, sure. uh, you know, and I, I'm not sure exactly what years, uh, Fritz was the president of the NWA, and then I know Eddie was, so maybe it was a question of, you know, around the bicentennial, would uh, would Eddie have had the kind of stroke to be able to convince Sam Hutchick? I mean, even if it's like a short-term kind of thing, you know, Dusty wins the belt on say July 4th, uh, you know, defeats... The the NWA champion and maybe like uh, you know a couple months later he drops the strap but you know I think that would have been an, you know uh, just a, the kind of thing that would have really been newsworthy and and they would have made a huge deal out of that so I also reached out to Brian Lass I said Brian can you give me an example and he had a couple of interesting ones tell me what you think of these he suggested that maybe think about it Wrestle War ninety uh, in Greensboro you uh, you had Sting had just gotten injured at the Clash. Uh, due to the actions of Doug Dillinger. That's an old joke that John Hitchcock used to always say. Uh, But so Lex Luger fills the slot and main events against Flair. They have a great match that ends up with a a really kind of ridiculous finish. But
1: what if they had given the strap to Luger at that point? Yeah, I guess so. It's a little bit harder for me to talk about that era and what would have worked because there was a lot of stuff that they attempted that didn't work. So would it have been a bad idea to get, I don't think so. I I think, I think the key for the promotions at that stage would have been creating new blood. And I don't think either promotion in the year, like 1990, we're, we're we're doing a good job of that. And I think, I think if if you want, I'm sorry to interrupt. If you're
0: trying to appease the fans who were like, you know, okay. Like the horseman had been blamed for stings injury. Okay. And now Luger takes the slot. What better way, Uh, from the fan perspective, to screw the Horseman after they've injured Sting than to have Luger come in as the quick replacement. And Luger, who's, let's be honest, off a great one-and-a-half-year run there where his matches are the best of his career, and he defeats Flair, and he becomes the new babyface world champion. And then what you could do is you could take that out, you know, and, you know, he and Flair go back and forth, but then you get to the bash in July – Sting's all recovered and then, you know, you have you can do Sting versus Luger, Luger versus Flair, Flair versus Sting. You got you got more possibilities, I think. So I think that's kind of an interesting idea. The other it one he, yep. he mentioned is a SummerSlam 1993, should they have pulled the the trigger on Luger? I believe it's when uh, Luger would have faced Yokozuna.
1: No. So and I'll tell you, I Luger, and this, I, I think that actually really damaged Luger's career. Not not that match or that whole angle specifically, but his trip to the Federation, I think, damaged his career. He really wasn't that over. And if you go back and you watch, you could have gambled and said, hey, if we have him beat Yokozuna, I think he, didn't he body slam Yokozuna? Yes. On the boat or the on, ship? yeah, uh, On the carrier, yeah. Or yeah, and that yeah. was a big deal. But overall, Luger was not as over as they had hoped he, had, he would have been. And I think it's because they killed him with that horrible gimmick, the narcissist. If, you know, I, I do like the first suggestion, Luger in WCW in 90. I don't think in 93. I don't know. I just don't think it would have done a whole lot. Yeah.
0: All right. So now it's time
1: for this date in CWF history. Bear. What?
0: Talking June 22nd. I hope you have your notebook. Oh yes. We are ready to fill the fans minds with what has gone on this date in championship wrestling from Florida history.
1: Go let, dogs go. Let me fill your mind right now. So yeah, so we got uh you know, it, one of the things that's always interesting to me too is I like to see the amount of world title matches on any given date and you know, sometimes you can go back to the the days of Dick Hutton, you know, and and go back to uh the 40s or the 50s, which is great. But we, we've we got a couple this day and a guy that when you stop and think about it, nobody talks about him. Nobody remembers him. Certainly, I think he was out of the public eye, you know, by 1980. And even then, I think he was very limited for a large portion of the 70s. But Gene Kaniski, Gene Kaniski was big thunder. A, big thunder, was your world's heavyweight champion, you know, was a guy that that held the title for a few years as well. And uh, I, I think his strength, Gene Kaniski's strength was his believability that you literally believed this guy was a badass And I think he really was, he was a tough guy, but we've got a great Gene Kaniski match. He faces another heel in Tarzan Tyler and Tarzan. Tyler's another interesting guy. This match took place, Jeff in the, the sleepy town of O'Galley, Florida, which I think is really Melbourne as well, right? Aren't they like side by side?
0: I will bow to your better knowledge on that.
1: So O'Galley, Florida, uh, the 22nd, 1966, Gene Kaniski versus Tarzan Tyler. And really both guys are forgotten by history. Tarzan Tyler died in the car crash. I believe it was the same one that took the life of Adrian Adonis, if I'm correct.
0: Mm -hmm. I know he died in a car crash. I don't know if it was the same one because, Didn't uh, Adrian Adonis (laughs) die in the car crash with Dave McKigney, the Canadian Wolfman? I think
1: so. And, you know, I don't know if Tarzan Tyler was in that crash, but he definitely died in a car accident. Yeah. And then he was with he was with wrestlers, too. You're right. I think his was based out of Montreal. And then I think McKigney was was not. I, I forget exactly what area, you know, he was in. Maybe that was Toronto or something like that. But. They both, I think, occurred within a few years of each other. I do think you're right. I think Tyler was several years before McKigney. I did a uh, quick uh, Google search there.
0: Tarzan, Tyler died along with fellow wrestler Mad Dog LeFevre, Adrian uh, Despois, who was a referee in a wildlife reserve in Quebec. He was wrestling as a heel manager for Gino Brito's promotion uh, at the time. So he was not in the car with the... with gotcha. Adrian it so was an uh, Christmas Eve,
1: 1985. Sorry. Oh, that's a shame. Adrian was with one of the Kelly twins. I think the yes. real name was Arco and he was with one of the Kelly twins, but Tarzan Tyler is another one. And Tarzan Tyler, I think by even 10 years earlier, by the mid seventies had slowed down tremendously, had gained a, a good amount of weight. And it just wasn't in the, in the, the spotlight and the profile, but you go back to the sixties, and then through the early part of the seventies, especially his time in Florida, Tarzan Tyler was a force and you know, this sun match, tan
0: yeah. bleach blonde hair. Yeah. And yeah, he was, he was early a, a, attitude. Yeah. Former. Uh, yeah, I want to say he was the tag team champion with crazy Luke Graham. When I, I mean, right when I first started watching <laughs> wrestling and it wasn't even the WWF tag team champions, uh, because it was before the, the federation had to, you know, had come up with their own belts. So, but he was wrestling in the Federation with Crazy Luke Graham, And I think they want to maybe they called him either like the international champions or the world champions. But it wasn't the quote unquote WWF. Team. But Lou Albana was their manager. Anyway, I interrupted. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's, I remember that, too. And that was that was like roughly the same period. You had like King Curtis and Baron Sucluna as the tag champions. And then you had Rene Goulet and Carl Gotch, of all people as tag team champions up there. And I, I don't know who traded with. I Luke, apologize.
0: But... I just checked.
1: He and Luke Graham
0: were the first WWF oh. tag team
1: champions defeating oh that great team of Dick the Bruiser and the Sheik. So is that a is this a phony uh title 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 exchange? I don't know. Uh, you know if it took place in Albuquerque, New Mexico, we know it right. was <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I need to see the photos on this one. Exactly. exactly. So that's an interesting matchup to me. A year earlier in Tampa, you had NWA World's heavyweight champion Lou defeating Danny Miller. uh, Also on that card, Sam Steamboat, the father, wink-wink, of Ricky Steamboat. Nod, nod. Working with the great Malenko. And then we get to the same night as that O'Galley match, which was Koniski versus Tarzan Tyler. You had Sputnik Monroe facing ex-champion, luthes in uh, sarasota so two cards the same night which i love that when a territory does that they do two cards on the same night and they disperse the talent sometimes equally sometimes not but solid card but check out this card 622 1973 and Fort lauderdale main event ron and robert fuller working with dick slater and gorgeous george jr but check out the match underneath that. Buddy Colt versus the Great Malenko. I mean, that just, that had to be something. I'm sorry I missed that one. I wasn't there for that. No blood. No blood in that match. I'm uh, I think that was the beauty of CWF, too. There wasn't a card that took place in the 70s that probably didn't have blood on it. You know, there At least one match was somebody was going to bleed, and that was really key and critical back then. Moving on, 622-76. Got a tape fist match right here. Missouri Mauler working with Joe Leduc. I would have loved to have seen that. Again, we're talking about blood. I'm going to say first 90 seconds of that match, uh, Joe Leduc has been busted open. There's, There's just no way. He's absolutely been busted open. Main event of that card, the babyface team of Dusty Rhodes, Ray Candy, and King Curtis working with Pac Song, the Assassin, and Rock Hunter. So a really solid card there. Moving on to 77, we talked about it last week. Dusty Rhodes still going for revenge on Ernie Ladd. They had another barn burner here. I think this one drew a little bit better than the week before. And I'm going to research that date on the 15th, Jeff, because I am curious why it would draw only you know, 2,500 people. This I'm going to one... hold you to that, mister. All right. The second we, we stop recording, I'm doing the research. But check out this match directly underneath. Pat Patterson and Ivan Koloff and we've talked Pat Patterson and Ivan Koloff were a stellar tag team. This was this was a glorious period for tag team wrestling in Florida and Koloff and and Patterson were really right at the forefront of that. They're facing off with a uh, a relatively new talent to the area, Skip Young and his tag partner of the for the night Mil Máscaras. Mm. So I can tell you that uh, Patterson and Koloff won that match, and I'm pretty sure Miscaris <laughs> did not do
0: the, not job. Do the job. Yes, yes.
1: I would unfair, imagine unfair that, that did not happen. But I wanted to address something that you brought up last week, because as I was going through results for this date, this popped out at me. six twenty-two eighty-two in Tampa. Main event, the Funk Brothers, and we're talking the legitimate Funk Brothers of Terry and Dory Funk Jr., defeating Barry Windham and Mike Graham, Mike Graham, a substitute for David Von Erich. Aha. Aha. So you said it last week, Jeff, and there it is. There's the proof. David Von Erich, no showing. I don't know if he was done in this state at this point. Again, when we we stop recording, I will do the research off of this one and see. The two uh,
0: guys, I'm sorry to interrupt, the two yeah, guys
1: yeah. that when uh, me and, and Craig Halleck would go to the matches that were notorious
0: in West Palm Beach for no-showing were uh, David Von Erich during his run. And I, I want to say it was maybe a year earlier when we go, uh, Cyclone Negro was always famous for doing a no-show in West Palm Beach.
1: That's interesting, and I can't figure out Cyclone. And what year was that? Uh god I want to say it might have been around the same time 8182 so he, was, he it was on. like his last run right it and, was his last and, run yeah. and he was the truth was he was already essentially it, it was his career was already over at that point he had slowed down dramatically but yeah I can't figure out cyclone had a nice feud with el gran apollo yeah. uh, during that time no but... we never got to see that <laughs> because exactly. every time yeah. the match was booked he would no show so I asked a similar situation. So Jack Briscoe and the city of Miami and Jack and Jack wrestled in Miami plenty of times. But there was a period there in the second half of the 70s where Jack Briscoe had to be replaced and it was happening frequently. And he had a, a program, if you remember, with Killer Carl, Killer Carl Khan, with Killer Khan. There was no Carl there. And exactly, <laughs> Carl Cox's brother. All this Killer fucking Con. cold medicine that I'm on right now. I'm starting to, my head's starting to spin. I have this, that rare summer cold that no one should ever get. But So he had this feud with Killer Khan, and it was all predicated on where Khan had injured Jack's ribs, and Jack was laid up and the ribs were taped. And they had a feud all over the state. And Jack was making his shots in other cities. But for some reason, Miami, he wasn't making. And this happened like three weeks in a row. You know. But he w- you'd see him in West Palm on Monday night, and he was fine. And then he wasn't there on Wednesday. So I asked one of the young ladies. We call them ring rats, Jeff. Oh. And I asked one of the young ladies in the back, and I was like, why isn't Jack ever here? And they said, they said well, Jack doesn't like Miami because he he lost the world title to Terry Funk in Miami, and look at that stage, I think I was fifteen I didn't know if that was true or not, so I went up to the ring announcer, famed golden Voice Frank Freeman, and I asked Frank the question and Frank Frank was never there are people that will tell you differently. Frank was never a warm guy he was a I think he was a tough no nonsense heart as steel type of guy and not a bad guy either just not wasn't a warm teddy bear so i went up and i asked frank and he said jack doesn't like miami that's why you're not seeing jack here just like that like matter of factly so years passed 10 20 30 years i forget what it is and jack is he briefly was on a wrestling website uh that shall remain nameless we could say it, it was wrestling classics and Jack was on there and really, really brief. So I asked the question and I said, hey, Frank Freeman told me this. And Jack said, absolutely not true. He goes, I don't remember why I wasn't there, or what the circumstances, but it wasn't because I didn't like Miami. I always love Miami. And ah, what the it, old wrestling
0: classics board, Barry, I remember
1: when that used to be a good board. And then when
0: that was, well, it was, you know, it was still a, a good page when when mark was alive and and then after he died it was almost as if a mask overcame the board oh i see what
1: you did there yeah i think it had been going down the tubes prior well mark had been sick and not to we don't want to belabor this but mark you know and i i always felt you know bad about that too mark uh, mark had a unique personality I'm trying to find the right way, and he. <laughs> that's a, a good way of putting it. That's about okay, and he ha, he pissed off a lot of people. Some people loved him and would have followed him off the you know the edge of the cliff, uh, and others didn't. But he he was a unique guy, but I you know I will tell you he did appear to really love that board a lot, and and it always tried to make it better. But he he had been sick for quite a while, and I always felt really bad because. Mark got married later in life. He was in his 40s. I think he had his first kid. That yeah, was probably in his 50s. You know, maybe late 40s. And then he catches cancer and he dies. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, very he unfair. was robbed. Yeah, exactly. He was robbed of a family. His son was robbed of a father. And he he loved that kid. That, that much I know. He loved his son. So I always felt terrible. But he had been sick for a while. Rest in peace, Mark Nolte. So, yeah. So, yeah. So that that's where we are. A couple other matches to point out. Uh, I love the fact that when we talk about this date, the Fort Myers and Orlando cards always fall on this date because it, it gives me a chance to go in and look and go, wow, they were they were pulling the same matches, essentially pulling the same matches, except on these two cards. These matches are actually really different. The main event of the Fort Myers match, this is 1980, Texas death match, Dusty Rhodes versus Don Morocco. The next night, Dusty, I am I take it, I'm sorry, it's the same day, just at night, Dusty not on that card at night, uh, which is interesting. So it looks like everybody else probably got in a car and drove back. But I would love to know where Dusty was. Dusty, not there, but Don Morocco faced Mike Graham for the Florida title and also on the Orlando card, which took place that night, six twenty two eighty, the Briscoe brothers, Jack and Jerry defeating Bryant, St. John and Stan Lane. Yes, mm-hmm. that same Stan Lane. That would have been a good match. Yeah, it would have been. Stan Lane was very good at that stage, too, and I don't know how much he progressed in his career. But this was, I think he was a year out of the gate when they brought him into Florida. He was very good. Brian St. John, nobody knows who Brian St. John. I think he retired by 81 or 82. He was this guy. I, I think I, we talked about him. Didn't he become like a paramedic or a firefighter or something like yeah, that? Yeah, he did, out in yeah. uh, New Mexico. And somebody was able to locate him. He walked away from the business.
0: Yeah, um, wants nothing to do with it, one of those guys.
1: Yeah, one he's like a Don Diamond. Just walked away and wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. So that's what I got, Jeff, for this All right. I appreciate it. So as promised, Barry,
0: want to talk about the other night, Mrs. Bowdrin at work. She had finished up with a patient, and the patient was very kind, gave my wife a gift card to the old Cracker Barrel down the road. And so Mrs. Bowdrin suggests we go the other night. So, you know, we go there, and one of the things that was a little frustrating is, now, this is like a Cracker Barrel it's right off the interstate, okay? So the fact that it's busy is not, it should not be surprising. Okay. But what happened was my wife checked their app to see if there was a wait, if we could do call ahead seating, one of those things, or if we could, you know, on the app, do it to put our name in because we're not that far away. And so my wife says, Oh, well, we don't need to do it because it shows here that there's no wait." Okay. So we drive to the uh, Cracker Barrel. It's about a 15 minute drive. We get there. And we walk up, and we kind of notice there's a lot of people standing around. And My wife says, well, uh, yeah, can we put our name in? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, it's about a 25-minute wait. And I said, excuse me. And she said, uh, yeah, 25-minute wait. I said, well, that's funny because my wife uh, checked the app, and it said that uh, there was no wait. Oh, yeah. I've had a few people tell me that. I have to mention that to the manager. <clears throat> and so... You know, we uh, we did uh, our little waiting outside in the uh, rocking chairs conveniently provided by the Cracker Barrel. And uh, so then we come back in. Okay, so then we notice, and this is where Barry Rose, restaurant manager, comes into play. So, Barry, I don't know if you've known this, but, you know, with all the staffing issues that various restaurants, and let me just say, it's <laughs> not just Cracker Barrel, okay? Every restaurant out there that has reopened after COVID is having certain staffing issues. For reasons we won't get into, there's multitudes of different reasons. Okay. But what they had done at this particular Cracker Barrel, they basically shut down half the restaurant. Okay. So they've got about half the seating they normally would have. Okay. However, that does not make up for what I considered very, very average service. There was no, uh, you know, hey, we'll do anything we can to accommodate you. And of course, part of the reason we always love going to Cracker Barrel, uh, Barry, uh, when's the last time you've been to a Cracker Barrel, by the way?
1: (laughs) I was at a Cracker Barrel. Four days ago. I didn't eat though, okay. Jeff. I, I went to the store and I grabbed a jar of the cherries and the fried apples. There you go.
0: So you know that, uh, well, you've been there uh, recently enough that you know when you sit down, usually they, uh, oh, do you want some, uh, some biscuits or some cornbread? Yes, of course. So they bring out the plate and we said, yes, we will take both. So first things first, the girl brings out the plate and it's four biscuits, okay? And she gives us Literally, for four biscuits, she gives us two patters of butter and two things of uh, of jelly to uh, to put on the biscuits, okay? So I was like, really? Wow, I guess you're trying to save, uh, you know. So uh, so then, uh, I want to say about uh, we ordered, uh, we're like 10 or 15 minutes waiting, and, you know, we'd ordered the fried chicken. So I was like, I'm not worried about the wait because they're making the fried chicken. I understand there's going to be a little time involved in that. But the girl never brought us the cornbread. So we finally said, oh, uh, can you bring us the cornbread? Sure. Brings us two two uh, things of cornbread with one patter of butter. And I'm like, really? Like, uh, you know. And the reason I bring this up is it used to be, and I understand this was pre-COVID and all that. You'd go to Cracker Barrel, and you'd say, I'd like some uh, cornbread and some uh, some biscuits,
1: whether it was for breakfast or dinner. And I'd bring you over like eight, you know, like you get four So So, Jeff, let me interrupt you. So, what would the logic be? And like, how is how does COVID affect something like that? Is that there's not enough people in the kitchen to make the cornbread or the butter, so we have to ration it well, out?
0: Well, you know, or there is a uh, dare I say a corporate cheapness that's going on that says uh, yeah, don't put it out exactly there. You know, is, right? <laughs> so uh, so then we get the uh, my wife my, we got two different versions of the chicken. My my wife got a chicken uh, like uh, the boneless chicken, and I got you know, the, the regular chicken, the boned in chicken. And when I got it, I told my wife, uh, you know, like I started eating it and like, there was a, there was a wing that literally had no meat on it at all. I like, I didn't even bother. And so there was a a chicken leg, a chicken, uh, like a thigh and a breast. And I told my wife after, after eating it, I said, I gotta be honest with you. This is essentially one step above KFC, which I know you're a big fan of Barry. And I said, if this was not free, (laughs) I would be even, more disappointed but of course as we mentioned before barry food always tastes better when it's free i think we can agree on that absolutely and so then i got a side of mashed potatoes and green beans the mashed potatoes and of course they put them in a cup and then they turn the cup over so you've got the formed uh, you know semi-circle as i put my spoon into the mashed potatoes it was like putting it into a brick that hadn't oh. quite hardened yet and i was like seriously wow and so then
1: uh
0: my wife had the uh as i said the boneless uh, chicken she brought it she didn't finish it she had two pieces she finished one took the second one home i had the second one for lunch the following day and it was way better i i will say than the pieces of chicken that i had but this leads us back to why i wanted to bring all this up barry not just because of uh i wanted to put the boots to cracker barrel tell me as a restaurant manager Right after high school has got out for, uh, you know, for, for the end of the year, and you have students that are home from, co- from college for the summer, why is a place like Cracker Barrel having these kind of staffing issues, do you think?
1: There's so many factors involved with it. So they, they generally, I don't, I don't know if there's a lot of high school students. What I see at Cracker Barrel, as far as the front of the house, usually is 25 to 50-year-old women. That that's usually what I see in the front of the house. I don't know if I've ever seen a mail server there. I would assume they gotta have some mail servers there. But Cracker Barrel, if I'm correct, they have a relax an overall relaxed hiring policy. And when I say that, there is a, a restaurant and I'm gonna talk pre COVID because I don't at this stage I don't have any idea what goes on, but There is a a major restaurant chain that's based out of the state of Tennessee that would—and I I may have talked about this or joked about this—that would hire almost anybody, especially for the back of the house and working in the kitchen. And it's much like the scene that we've talked about from Maximum Overdrive with the star on the card saying that they're on a work release or a felon, but there were in this restaurant there were a bunch of a bunch of felons convicted felons that were working in uh in the kitchen and it it you know uh, you would assume that these when they get out they're looking for a job and the truth is it can be very difficult to get a job if you are a convicted felon so if a restaurant's willing to hire you you're absolutely going to take that position I don't know if I've ever seen a lot of kids in working in Cracker Barrel. Yes, there is a national labor shortage, especially when it comes to retail and restaurants. I think you're going to see that subside by the time the summer's over. But with that, you know, if you put out a substandard product, you do more damage than anything else. And it, you know, if you like you, based off your experience in going into Cracker Barrel, and even though Jeff. You and Mrs. Bowdern are sympathetic currently to the situation. It isn't like you guys are going to be running back to Cracker Barrel.
0: No, if Mrs. I can tell you if Mrs. Bowdern has a negative experience at a restaurant, yeah, we she's almost go right. We, yeah, and we never go back, especially yeah. if it's bad. If she had had the plate that I had, I can tell you she'd be like, "Nope, nope, not going back." Or, God forbid, on the local news or in the paper. If you know you do the inspection and uh, they find like uh, certain things in the kitchen that aren't supposed to be there, if you know what I mean, Mrs. Sure. and ixnay
1: on that place forever. Well, on that you never want to read uh, the, the the reports, the inspection reports, because even great restaurants. I'll tell you a funny story. Years ago, we, we used funny to ha edit, ha or funny unusual. Funny unusual. It's okay. definitely not funny ha ha. But we used to. So we would get inspected twice a year. And this was a major restaurant chain that I was working for. And one year, the inspector came in. Now, the inspector appeared to be 23 years old. She was blonde hair and she was gorgeous. I struck up a conversation because that's exactly what I would do. Yeah, exactly. And she had told me she had been out of college for a year and she had gotten this job. She gave us a perfect inspection. Let me tell you, and everyone listening knows this that's ever worked in a restaurant, a a true perfect inspection does not exist. Just as no way does it exist, and she gave it to us. So every restaurant's going to have- uh, Did
0: you take her in the back office and uh,
1: give her what for uh, so that you got that perfect mark? I did not. Uh It's not the worst idea I've ever heard yet, uh, but I did not, but there's just no way. And look, another restaurant I worked in a year later, two years later- we got dinged for stuff that I didn't know ever even existed. Like this guy, and this, this was not a 22, 23 year old right out of college. This guy was a hard ass. So he had a hard time. I, I would say, you know, this way if a restaurant cannot give you their full best experience, then they need to figure out a game plan. Cut your dining room in half. And treat the half that's in that dining room like gold. Of course. Instead, no, and, exactly. And, and, instead and, of a subpar experience, because now, Jeff, you won't go back. Yeah. Now if, they,
0: if they had taken advantage of the of cutting the restaurant in half, okay, and maybe it was because they're short staffed, who knows why? Okay. But there were just started adding up the problems. Okay. What should have happened, in my estimation, you tell me if I'm wrong, is when we informed that hostess of the problem, and by the way. Uh, just to double back on something you mentioned, we've been to this restaurant before, and there have been. Matter of fact, we had a waitress that served us regularly and always did a great job, who we struck up a conversation with, who at the time that she was serving, was still in high school. And she was telling us like, all, and it ended up, she literally lived in the same neighborhood that we lived in, which is why when we would go back, we'd always get her and, you know, and have a nice conversation. She was a really nice girl. And, but in my estimation, when we told the hostess, Hey, uh, this is what your app is telling us. Not like I'm going to have to mention that to my manager. I think to make us happy, we needed to see that manager called, brought over to her, taken to our table. I'm sorry, did you have a problem? Yeah. Let me tell you about what the problem was with your app so that you can address it.
1: I mean, is that completely unfair? No, it's not unfair at all. It's just, it's, uh, let me tell you about an experience I had at Anthony's. So I I didn't tell you about this. I certainly didn't talk about this on air because I like Anthony's. It is the best pizza that I I can get locally. You know, it, it's it, other it, I can go into Philly uh, obviously, but you know, there's an Anthony's 15 minutes from me. But week after week after week, and it's usually on Saturdays, I go in to get a pizza, and something happens. And whether I was dining in or taking out, it was the same. Now it wasn't because of a labor shortage. There were plenty of people working. There were you know there they were at the uh, the takeout counter, the, where the register is, there were three girls. They also work as the hostesses, there's two bartenders, there's servers, there's people behind cooking, there's managers. They have a staff. problem is their management totally fucking sucks. And the last time I was there, which was either two or three weeks ago, and I finally said I'm probably not going to go back, at least till I get back from Florida, I ordered a pizza. I was told it would be 45 minutes. 45 minutes is a long time. But if you tell me that and I accept those terms, that's on me, right? Absolutely. So I show up at the restaurant 45 minutes. The girl tells me, it'll be two minutes. Your pizza will be up. 22 minutes later, the pizza's ready. So a manager comes over and gives me a $5 off my next visit coupon. I say, thank you. I don't make a scene. It's like, you know, five bucks, go fuck yourself. You know, I just want my fucking pizza when you tell me it's going to be ready. What really infuriated me more than anything else was watching the manager stand around the dining room, watch television, look at his phone, never once engaging with customers or his staff. Never once going over to the kitchen and saying, how long are ticket times? Can I help you get the food out? There was to-go food piling up in the window. And these girls, they're 16 or 17 years old, are scrambling to get it. The manager standing off on the other side watching a basketball game. I was livid. And, I, you know, I hate to cost anybody their job. But I got to tell you, I was like, that motherfucker. I should go home and write a letter to corporate right now. And I did it.
0: Well, I, I, is I there really anything thought. that, you know, that <laughs> screams that, you know, to me, how hard is it, for example, the guy that you mentioned, okay, or any restaurant manager, how hard is it for you to walk past the table? Is everything okay? Anything we can do to make your visit better? Uh, anything we need to, we need to kickstart a little bit more, you know, and, and that costs you nothing. And if they say, well, you know, we were told we'd have the meal in, uh, in two minutes and it took 22 minutes. Okay. I'm going to look into that for you. I'm going to find out why that problem happened. And I'm going to come back hopefully before you leave and explain what happened. You know, that's going to cause you to go, Oh, maybe this guy gives a shit. Maybe I'll come back here again.
1: As opposed to, as opposed to throwing you five bucks and saying, yeah, come back again, you know? And and because the girls had to go over and tell him that this guy has been waiting for his pizza for an hour and like 20 minutes or whatever the, the final time was that that was the best he could do. Now, I, I didn't care. I, I wasn't looking for a, a free pizza. No big deal. Five bucks, whatever. You know, Five bucks is like, you know, shit. I was at CVS today. I spent 50 bucks. So it isn't like five bucks is going to cost me a lot. But I wanted him to care. But it made me mad, uh, partially, I guess, because I was in that business, obviously. But it made me mad because not only was I affected, everybody else in that restaurant was affected by a guy that's drawing a probably $75,000 a year salary that literally could have given two shits. And it was, it was offensive. Literally he, you know, almost every corporate restaurant requires their management staff to do table touches where you've got to go by. And, and literally the last place I worked at as a restaurant manager we had to touch the table. The key was I would walk by a table, and, as I asked a question, my I would put two fingers on the table. I would do the table touch, but it was hey how how is your meal tonight? Are we taking care of you? Is there anything I can do it doesn't have to turn into a twenty minute visit. no no diner wants you at their table for twenty minutes It's a question of showing respect to somebody who's coming into your restaurant and spending money, and when you sit over there in your dirty jeans and you're watching a basketball game and then looking at your phone and not once do you walk over to the kitchen as food is piling up not once do you offer to help your staff you should be fucking fired and uh, again i didn't write that email because i don't want to be that guy and i don't know this guy's personal life maybe he's got a lot going on but i can clearly tell you he should not be managing a restaurant
0: I think as a restaurant manager, Barry, the least we could expect you to do back in your days is for you to not just walk up the table, put two fingers on but to slide next to, uh, if hopefully a good-looking woman, and say, that. by the way, uh, have you heard about <laughs> BowdrinPod.com? <Breaking my> <laughs> <laughs> and if we had started Patreon by then, you know, it's yeah. $5 to subscribe. Can I mention Can that I to you? So there's two things that I want to <laughs> mention uh, before we close out this particular segment. Uh, as I've stated before, one of the, you know, guys on TV that uh, is one of my must-watches, I know not everyone feels this way, I love Gordon Ramsay's show, okay? Gordon Ramsay used to have the, the Kitchen Nightmare show. Folks, if you ever want to see the way a lot of kitchens are run, you need to go back and, and take a look at some of these shows. Because some of the shit, uh, you know, you think you're getting this uh, great, uh, you know, a meal and everything's clean and sanitary. Watch one of these shows and sees, and see what goes on. Not in every restaurant. There are plenty of restaurants that are, that are, if not 100% meet the standards, but, you know, that meet the standards and are okay, but there are some that are out there that do not meet the standards. And you watch a show like that, and, you know, like, uh, you see the way they keep the, the refrigerator, the shit they keep in the refrigerator, how long they have. You know, when you order your uh, barbecue chicken, and you see that it's chicken that's been in there for, like, two or three days, that it will make you fucking sick. Now, the last thing I want to say is my wife, used to treat a guy that was a food inspector. This is when we lived in Broward County. And my wife used to ask him about his job. And he like, what sort of places? He would tell my wife which places she wanted to stay away from. One of them that was notorious, I'm just going to put this out there for those of you listening in Broward County. He said, yeah, you don't want to go to Burger King because Burger King is notorious for failing inspections and for uh, having
1: substandard fare. Let's just put it that way, Bear. Yeah, well you'd be, Jeff, you'd be really surprised at the restaurants. And if you ever do read these inspection reports, they are available, I believe, online, just about absolutely. everywhere now. They're some of them are absolutely just just absolutely frightening. And and much like Mrs. Bowdrin, like I I I can sometimes read through certain things and go, I'll go there. But there are some times I'll read and go, wait, you found rodent droppings in the ice cream cooler? I'm out. Like yes. I'm you know, I'm out, I'm out. Uh, multitudes of uh, roaches
0: scurrying in the kitchen that's uh that's sort of a no go for me, you know. <laughs> it's like yes. nope thanks, I'm out.
1: <laughs> yeah. And look again, it, it every restaurant is going to have a challenge. Even when it comes to cleanliness is it, one of the things I learned early on when you open up the low boys like those coolers, there is a rubber sealant rim around it. It's called a gasket. Those have to be cleaned on a daily basis, which Most people, you know, unless you're in the restaurant business, you would never think of that. You're like, yeah, what would I clean that for? You have to clean that. So it is crazy, Jeff. But, you know, moral of the story, take care in any business you run, whether it's a restaurant or it's retail. If you don't take care of the people coming in and spending money, they are eventually going to stop coming in. And that's on you if that happens.
0: So, Barry, recently you told us a story about number one, Paul Jones at the CAC, and I understand you have an update for
1: us. I do, Jeff. You're going to love this, too. So, I I remember when the whole thing happened, and we talked about this, and I believe it was on last week's episode, and uh, Paul had given his speech and had used the see you next Tuesday word, and apparently that had caused quite a big controversy. However, I got a message just a few minutes ago from our old friend Dale Spear. And Dale has been going to Cauliflower Alley Club, I don't know, 10, 20 years at this point. And he goes, I was just listening to the podcast and uh, I heard you talk about Paul Jones and the time he used the C word at CAC. He said that wasn't the controversy that night. I was sitting at the same table along with Paul, along with George Shire, Mick Karch, Joyce. Postian, I'm sure I'm butchering your last name and I apologize, Joyce, and someone else I don't remember. The controversy that night was that Paul was ripping major farts (laughs) at at the table all through dinner and then kayfabing it like it wasn't happening. I thought Shire was going to become unglued. Anyway, when I think of Paul in the CAC, I think of farts, not the C word. All other things, it's reverse order. How funny is that? Paul Jones is farting up a storm, man. That's hilarious. So, Barry, now it's time for the old go home
0: from your friends at Breaking Kid Paper Bowder and Barry. You about ready to hit the road, my friend?
1: I think this is one of my favorite episodes ever, Jeff. The, this one we did today. So, uh, yes.
0: me, hold on. I'm, I'm going to check something real quick. That uh, was the 192nd time because you weren't on two and three <laughs> the 192nd time you've said that this is your favorite episode ever well, there you go by the way let me let me just mention this to you because uh someone posted i believe it was our friend michael herrick uh, recently posted a link on bowdronpod.com where you can get the older episodes if you want to go back and listen barry do you know that on your very first uh appearance with uh, me on breaking Cafe with bowdron barry episode number one do you know uh we didn't review just one match we reviewed like, I think it was five or six matches. So, Barry, what do you say? Do you want to go back to reviewing five, six matches a, a week? <laughs> I <laughs> never want to do that ever again. All yeah. righty. So, on behalf of my co host, Barry Rose, and our producer, <laughs> the sweet man, Lou Kippelman, I will say that I am Jeff Bowder, and they call me the Booker. And we are her production of the Arcadian Then Good Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us. Take it over.